Good morning, everyone. This morning we'll be looking in the Word of God from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Lord willing, we might even get through it. I see by the clock up here I've got plenty of time. It says 9.33. Got two hours. (laughs) Now I'm not doing a study on the book of Hebrews uh, from start, I'm not beginning a study on the book of Hebrews, so I won't go into a lot of detail about its background, other than to say this, <clears throat> it's written to a primarily Jewish audience, you know, hence the title, Epistle to the Hebrews, notice how I jumped right on that one, huh? So, and it's written really to the Jewish community, and if you were to read through the entire epistle, it, um, it's, it's coming with, it seems to be that there's a mixed audience out there of people, of believers and non-believers alike, because there's several warnings scattered out throughout this, this letter. So <clears throat> it's going to start out by exp- telling the audience in just exactly who Jesus is using the Old Testament which is where you would go if you were going to speak to a primarily Jewish audience. I'd like to introduce the lesson actually by going back to Luke 24 for a, for a minute. I, I, just, I was thinking about this. I already left my notes a little bit, but I promise not to wander too far. In Luke 24, if you remember when Jesus, this post-resurrection passage, Luke 24, Jesus met those two fellows on the road to Emmaus. And he stopped and he talked to them, and um, they were all befuddled, and they were discussing the events of the day. And uh, he said to them, oh, foolish men, slow of heart, believe it, believe it all the gods and the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself in the scripture. And then later on in the uh, where he met them and others in the upper room, same chapter, verse 44. Um, <clears throat> These words while I spoke to you, to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now Jesus was speaking primarily of those passages that uh, dealt with his death, burial, and resurrection. But I can't help but think that some of these passages we're going to be looking at are those he touched on to show who he is. Because what we're going to see here is uh, Jesus is going to describe uh, Jesus is going to be described by the writer whoever whoever he was we're not a hundred percent sure I've got my guess and that uh, that's all it would be even if I'm right it's going to go down as we're not sure who the author of Hebrews is okay so no matter what I say that's how we're going to approach it 
Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, has made purification of, when, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to stop right there. Now, and then when we move from here, then the remainder is going to be proving what was just said. Proof texts from the Old Testament to exactly what he just said. He's going to take a little further. Now, God, after he it, and I entitle this first section, if you're taking notes, God has spoken. God has spoken. And he goes, God's, <clears throat> God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways. As a matter of fact, you go way back to the early communications. How did it happen? At first, God spoke directly, didn't he? He's good, good examples. God spoke directly to Adam. He spoke directly to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. He spoke directly to all those folks. And then at the time of Moses, things started to get written down. That's when the, the scriptures first began during that time frame. Um, <clears throat> you say, well, what about Job? Well, Job is, was probably written sometime. We, the dating looks like in the names and places, ages, so forth, probably somewhere plus or minus the time frame of Abraham. Okay? So, but that's another issue for another day when we do Bibliology 101. Okay. Now, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, and you look at the, the books of the prophets, and by prophets I mean every writer of the Old Testament. Moses is said to be a prophet. David is said to be a prophet, okay, by the New Testament writers. Now, in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, well, how was it done? Well, God's truth was communicated through the law. It was communicated through dreams and visions, types and symbols, poetry, and direct revelation by God himself, and men wrote it down, and also through angels, the visitation of angels. I know angels appeared to Daniel, for example, the angel Gabriel. Uh, angel appeared in the, even the New Testament time and to, to Mary, Zacharias, and others. Now, the main takeaway, though, of this first section is that God spoke. This is not, as we know, this is not the concoction of man. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That word inspired by God, theonostos, God breathed. God breathed. A combination of theos, God, pneuma, breath. God breathed. Okay? In these last days has spoken to us in his son. Interesting, the word his, your Bible might have it in italics. I mean, it was added to, to help us. In son, almost referring to him as in son as the second person of the Trinity, but we'll just let that slide for now. Now, these last days, now what if this is interesting, these last days, <clears throat> well, the last days, quite frankly, refers to the days of Messiah. 
and the last days began with Messiah's first coming. And they were going to, they're going to continue all the way through what we call the church age, through the tribulation, through the, and into the millennial kingdom. That is the last days. And then after that thousand year reign, we're going to get the, there's some judgment to deal with, and then we're going to get some, the new heavens and new earth. And then uh, it's going to be amazing what we see beyond that. Now, these last days, again, refers to the days of the Messiah, or the messianic time. Uh, look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you want to follow along. I'm going to go pretty quick, because when people start smelling food, I may lose them. So, Jer- Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16, says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David. Guess who that is? A righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the name he's going to go by. Why? Because he's going to be sitting on the throne of David, ruling the earth, and righteousness is the order of the day. In Micah 5.1, we, we see this, we read this a lot around Christmas time. Uh, I'll pick it up. It says, uh, but with a rod they will smite and judge Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephaphra, too little to be among the claims of Judah for for." From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them, uh, <clears throat> he will give them until the time when, when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in his majesty, in the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. You know, even the Samaritan woman got that. Remember her? John chapter 4, the, the Samaritan, God said, I, I, I need to go through Samaria. And that providential meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, John four twenty-five and 26, 26 puts it this way in, in their encounter. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When uh, that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And I, I got to read the next verse. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. And we, the church, now are in those last days. They became with the coming of Messiah. Verse 2 In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things in these last days. And all revelation in this era comes through the Son. I'm going to start, remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In past times, God spoke through the prophets, right? 
In the same time, he was telling us, in, the, in this time, he spoke to us through, if I might say, the prophet. Who's the prophet? Well, the prophet is a messianic term that comes from Deuteronomy 18. He said, well, what has that to do? Well, I just happen to have that passage. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. And this is a messianic term. The Lord our God will raise up, and it's about talking about Moses, okay? The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me, speaking of Moses, speaking of himself, from among you, from your countrymen, and, he sh- and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, <clears throat> They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them and all that I commanded him, and and it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And you can think of so many passages in the four Gospels where Jesus spoke, I am the one. Believe, believe, believe. And the majority, of course, rejected. But you say, well, what about people like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul? They're, they're not Christ, are they? Well, see, by extension, Jesus speaks through his apostles. What's Matthew twenty-eight eighteen? the Great Commission? Jesus said what? All authority is given unto me on heaven and earth. And then Jesus spoke, if you want to turn there, uh, in John chapter 14, where Jesus, again, speaking, this is the uh, part of that upper room discourse. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things according to your remembrance of all that I said to you. And then further on in, in chapter 16, verses 12 to 15, it's, it's written there, I have more things to say to you, again, still in the upper room, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and discloses it to you. It's all the word of God. It's all the word of God. These, the apostles were commissioned by Christ, who has all the authority under heaven and earth to do that. And they did it. In John 2, John 2, the wedding feast at Cana, John 2, verses 19 to 22. <clears throat> we think of you know, turning the water into wine, but there's a lot more that went on there. John 2, 19 to 22 says this. Jesus answered, and this is after, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? 
you know? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised up from the dead, and this is where I'm going with this, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus, I will bring these things to your remembrance. And there it is. And now, we're going to see as we move on through this, the superiority of Christ in that second half of chapter, uh, verse 2 and 3, the superiority of Christ to all of creation. If you're taking notes, that's the second heading. Now it says in verse 2, the Son appointed heir of all things. What this is telling us is he, as the heir of all things, he owns all things. Okay? He owns all things. All right? Uh, Colossians 1, 15, a great book. Colossians 1, 15 and 16, if, if you can get there real fast, because I'm moving. i got, <laughs> got a lot of stuff. But I think it's, it's worth it to get this out there. Speaking of Christ, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of of authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For him. Okay? They were created for him. Right from the beginning, all this was created for Christ to be king over and ruler of. Okay? All of it. Every bit of it. That word firstborn means firstborn in rank or authority, not in succession. Okay? And through whom he made the world. That word world. Ion. Where we get the word like eons, okay? And it's not talking about the physical earth there. It's talking about he created the ages. The ages. Okay? The ages. And then in verse 3 where it says Jesus Christ is the radiance of his glory. Um, I pulled a few lines from a couple of the commentators that just are better at this than I am in said he is uh, he is the unfolded fullness of divine perfection i like that and he is the expression of divine glory i did that one okay and again john 1:14 right and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory as 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 the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth I mean, they saw his glory. They witnessed his glory. Just in everything he said and did, it just radiated glory. Okay? Amen. And he, Jesus, spoke of himself saying that he is, in fact, the light of the world, didn't he? Over and over again, many times. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Life. 
Again, what is the one and only requirement of man to be saved? Believe. You can't do. You must believe. You never do enough to earn anything. Okay? What you earn, Scripture tells us, is the wages <laughs> of sin and death. That's what you're going to earn because you can't do it. You can't do it. Now, where it says he is the exact representation of his, that's the Father's, nature. Again, back in Colossians, Colossians 2.9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That was God walking the earth. Okay? And it says, and again, in verse 3 of Hebrews 1 here it says, Jesus Christ has power over the universe. And it says, he upholds all things, Hebrews 1.3, by the word of his power. There's word again. The word became flesh, okay, and dwelt among us. The word is coming back again one day. But now, by the word of his power, he upholds everything. You wonder, you know, he makes the solar system and the and this moon and the, and the planets, the, the solar system, you know why it's in perfect motion that you can set your watch by it? Because he's in charge of it. He's in control of it. Colossians 1.17, where it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I can't help myself. I just got to ask the question. Do you really believe man can overrule the Lord to alter the climate in any direction? Or alter any law of nature? Do you really think that? No. I remember in the 70s, they were talking about the coming ice age, if we're not careful. Okay. I guess we were too careful. Now they're afraid of warming. All right. Okay. Well, what you have with all this stuff, you've got in full display the arrogance of man. It's like in, it's like in Psalm 2, shaking their fist at God. God can't be doing that. They deny that. You say that out in the street, you know, they'll put you in the rubber room. They, they don't buy it. They're, of, they're, they're blinded by the God of this age. Okay? Thank God we are enlightened by the God of all ages. The God that created the ages, as we've, we've just seen. And which leads us to the next point. Well, don't want to forget this. In verse 3, the end of verse 3, where it says... When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In John, in John, in uh, Daniel chapter 7, we get a beautiful picture of that where the Lord appears, our Lord appears before the Ancient of Days and comes back. But we might get there one of these in Sunday school. We may be doing a series in prophecy. Anyway, um, Well, he paid the price for our sins. We know that. And then when he says he sat down, by saying he sat down signifies the job, the work is complete. It's over. Remember on the cross, moments before he actually died, one of the very last things he said was, it is finished. And then he says he gave up the ghost. It is finished, done, complete. Went eventually, ascended back up to the Father, 
where he sits at the right hand. And if you kept going through Hebrews and other places, you'll see he's up there as our advocate, our great high priest. I mean, that is just all over Hebrews. And Hebrews is a great book if you want to just read about the magnificence of our Savior. I mean, it starts off big. It starts off big. Now, now we're going to take the, or the, the writer of Hebrews, not, not me, the writer of Hebrews is going to take the rest of this chapter to explain to us that Christ is superior, next heading, superior to the angels. And this will take us from verse 4 through 14. So in the following verses, using the Old Testament, the Son of God will be proven to be God, the Creator, one and the same there, heir to the throne of David, already been said, but it's going to be said again, and in much more clear terms, he will be shown as being eternal, which is an attribute of God, one of those non-communicable attributes, if you're familiar with that stuff. A non-communicable attribute is one that nobody else possesses. We, we, as believers, we can possess attributes that God does, not to his degree, but like we can be holy. Remember what scripture says, be ye holy as I am holy, right? So we can, to a lesser degree, have those same attributes, but we cannot be eternal. We had a beginning. He didn't. Okay, no matter, we will live for eternity, but we're not eternal in the sense, in the sense of God is, because God never had a beginning. He always was. Okay, better said, always is. The great I am. <laughs> okay, and we're going to see immutability when we get there. We'll point that out, which is another non-communicable attribute. And also one that I think is dear to all of our hearts, the fact that he will be presented, especially in the world as disgusting as it is now, he will be shown and described as king of kings and lord of lords. All that's going to be in here from the Old Testament. Now, first question I had is, why compare Christ to angels? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Why is, because remember, it's a Jewish audience, okay, and... I just wrote some points down here that um, it's interesting what some of the Jews believed. And to this day, I guess, many Jews held angels in way too high esteem. Some Christians do, too. Be careful. Be careful. You don't pray to them just like we shouldn't be praying to saints or anything else. There's one mediator, (laughs) one mediator, and that's the man Christ Jesus Some believed angels served as God's counsel and that God would not act without consulting them. Yeah, um, as a matter of fact, a good example of that, in Genesis 126, the word us, let us create man in our image. People have oh, that's, God was speaking to the angels. See, another weakness that our Jewish friends have, and they still have it to this day, is they don't get the Trinity. And I understand it was tough to get out of the Old Testament. It, it was difficult to see there. But um, they, like a lot of false religions, deny the deity of Christ, for example. Deny the uh, <clears throat> Father, Son, and Spirit being one God, three persons. 
And then some other fake beliefs here. Some believe 200 angels control the movements of the stars. Uh, a mighty angel took care of the, takes care of the seas. And other angels controlled the frost, the dew, the rain, the snow, hail, thunder, lightning. Maybe they're causing this climate change. Yeah, I mean. Well, that, that can't be right. None of this can be right. Because Hebrews 1.3 distinctly says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. That is scripture. That you can take to the bank. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I'll tell you you, you, you know and understand the scriptures. It can save you a lot of frustration. Worried about, are the seas going to rise? Are they going to? No. <laughs> you know, look out. Unless a storm comes, you know. But I mean, it's, it's just nonsense. Now, as we move through, I'm just going to take this one little section by section. In verse 5, the comparison to angels begins with a quote from Psalm 2. Matter of fact, it's Psalm 2, verse 7. Let's read that. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten thee? The answer to that question? None. None. You are my son. How might a Jew understand that statement? Well, you, you remember back quiz time. Remember back John 5.18? Sure you all do, right? No. John 5.18 says Jesus was calling God his father. And the reaction of the Jews, and Jews here in John refers to Jewish leadership. Not necessarily everybody, but Jewish leadership. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in writing to a Jew and telling a Jew, look, Jesus is superior to the angels because this is what Psalm 2 says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten thee. And that begotten refers to his incarnation. We celebrate that every Christmas. God became man. It's like the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Luke one thirty-five, and power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God, Luke one thirty-five. And again in Luke, but it's in the other Gospels as well. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice out of heaven said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. That was the Father speaking. You are my beloved Son. In verse 5 where it says, and again, okay, and again, so he's going to quote another passage. And again, and this is from 2 Samuel 7.14, which, by the way, is part of the Davidic covenant, which is extremely important. It says, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Okay. Now, 
the whole passage in 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 16, and I'll read it for you to, for the sake of time here. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, right there, it's the Lord speaking, or excuse me, the, uh, <clears throat> Nathan speaking to David. Okay? And he's talking about Solomon, and it, you'll see it shift. It starts with Solomon and immediately shifts right to the Messiah. Okay? It just makes us makes a shift. You'll see it right there. I will establish, I will establish <coughs> the throne, his kingdom forever. Well, doesn't, that wasn't Solomon. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. That's Solomon. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, which did happen. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. For, our, for, for your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So right there, he's speaking about Saul. Saul's going to get his, but Messiah is going to wind up on the throne forever and ever. And that is the, in verse 6, okay, uh, Jesus is again described as the king over creation. So in verse 6 it says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. That's from Psalm 97.7. And of the... Okay, I'll just stop right there. And he brings when he like that when he notice that word when he brings the firstborn or again brings the firstborn into the world again. What must that refer to? Again, he's not here. It's it's the writer of Hebrews talking when he again brings the firstborn into the world. He says, "And let the angels of God worship him." Again, okay. Well, the first number one firstborn, same word as in Colossians, prototokos, in rank, first in rank, not succession. Again, brings him into the world, first of the second coming. Again, he's right. Hebrews written after the ascension, when he again comes in, and then Psalm ninety-seven seven is referenced where he says, "And let the angels of God worship him." Well, not only is he superior to the angels, but the angels will, in fact, worship him. We are never to worship angels. Okay? And a matter of fact, one thing holds true. Only God is to be worshipped. Period. So by saying that, by him being worshipped, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Over and over again, we're going to see this. I mean, this was clear in the New Testament. And once the Old Testament scriptures are brought to light, ah, we can see it. And there's so many in there. In verse 7, Psalm 104, verse 4, is quoted. <clears throat> and we'll read it. He goes, and because he continues about the angels' work, he says, and of the angels, he says... Who makes, still speaking, of, still speaking of Christ, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds 
and his ministers a flame of fire. Well, that's all real obvious, isn't it? <laughs> you know. Well, what that actually is saying, who makes his angels winds and his ministers flame of fire, the... Okay, I'll talk with the ministers first. The fact they're ministers, which points to the fact that uh, they're servants. Angels are servants, like we are. As believers, we are servants of the Most High God. Angels, the ones that didn't fall, are servants of the Most High God. Matter of fact, look at verse 14 of Hebrews 1. Speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service? For the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You bet. You bet he is. I mean, you bet they do. I mean, they've been ministering for centuries. When they, when they came and gave uh, Daniel his, some of his prophecies, that ministers to all believers. When um, the angels appeared to, to you know, Mary and Zacharias in, in a dream to Joseph, you know, Sure, they were ministering through them to all of us, okay? And um, so when you talk about now his angels, his ministers, notice this, his angels, his ministers. His angels, his ministers points to the fact that they are created by him. Remember, and for him. Remember Colossians 1.16? They're created by him and from those principalities and all that, that's all referring to angelic beings. Jesus created them, which kind of makes him better than them, wouldn't you say? Okay, he is the creator God. Where it says he makes them winds, pneuma, it can be translated current of air, breath, like in Theonostas, God breathed, or spirit. I believe it's referring to actually their duties as messengers, I think is what this is talking about. You know, we see, <laughs> you know, pictures of angels. we got the cute little wings and the little fat guys, they fly around. No, that's not, that's really not what they are. Okay, little, little chubs. Okay. Um, and also it says flame of fire. Now here, I think this is a little bit, I notice a lot of, a lot of the commentators didn't want to talk about this one, but hey, I don't have enough sense not to, so I'm going to. Flame of fire. I believe this is what it's referring to. At times, angels would actually carry out the judgment of God. Fire is often synonymous for judgment, also for purging and cleansing, and from a purging sense. But for judgment, well, just think of this. It was an angel who struck down Herod for not giving glory to God. You can read that in Acts 12, 33. Remember that one? And he got eaten up with worms. You know, nice just before dinner. Um, and also in the great tribulation period, we're going to see the, there's going to be angels that sound the seven trumpets. There's going to be seven different angels that pour out the bowls of wrath upon the earth. So the angels are, they have been and, and will be again, uh, involved in God's judgments. So they're, they're active in that respect too. And I think that's what the flames of fire is. They're messengers of God, and at times they enact God's judgment. Okay, now, moving on to verses 8. and As you've probably noticed, we could camp on 
any number of places we've moved through. And if this was a study of the book of Hebrews, I probably would. It would probably take us a few weeks to get through this. Okay, because there's so much here that could be discussed and learned. But in verses 8 and now, and 8 and 9 now, Jesus is described as God and King by quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. So Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, and again, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteous and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You has loved you had loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Anointing an individual was what they did to the king. He was anointed as king. They also did that to prophets. So he was anointed as king. Now, but, the, but of the son, I love that. See, but of the son, he says, still that comparison. Angels, but of the son. And it, I mean, what we've seen so far is enough to convince me. I don't know about you, but it keeps going. And I think they keep going. Is Just remember what I read about some of the stuff that folks believed about that. I mean, there's stuff in Judaism like Kabbalah that believes some pretty bizarre things too, even today. So this evidently was a big enough problem that boom, 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 boom. I'm glad they did, or the writer did, because it just shows us all the richness of the Old Testament, which so many today so foolishly ignore. Foolishly ignore. But of the Son, still making that comparison, again, um, if you'd like to turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 9, I'll be looking at Isaiah 9 and also Isaiah 11, because it's going to be, again, the Old Testament speaking of our Lord as King. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, very familiar passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. All those terms, quite frankly, are terms of deity. Um, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and, and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. One thing I want to stop here a little bit, and if we could do that prophecy study in the Sunday school time, maybe in 30 days or so, where it says, He'll be on the throne of his kingdom to establish and hold it with just righteousness from then on and forevermore. In the prophetic flow of history, I'm convinced that Christ at the second coming, which happens at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, he will come and establish that kingdom where he will sit on that throne for a thousand years well, is that where it ends? No. Actually, where he sits from then on and forever, that thousand-year reign fulfills many of the promises in 
prophecies to the nation, Israel. But that thousand years is the first thousand years of forever. <laughs> okay? You can look at it that way. It's the first thousand years of forever. And then after that, you know, you got the white, great white throne judgment, and then you've got uh, the new heaven and new earth. And it just, and he will be king there too. And it just keeps on going. It just changes shape and it just keeps on going. Okay? So there's a lot for us to look forward to. And we will be involved some way in all of that. Isaiah 11, this one is uh, more specific to Israel. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. We've heard that before. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by, by, what he, by what his eyes see. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear. And what that's saying is he's going to judge based on facts. <laughs> based on facts. And... Um, it gives a description. Uh, it's at verse 5. The righteousness will be the belt of his loins. And faithfulness the belt around his waist. And why we know it's in, the, in that thousand year. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lamb will be on the outside. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. Same with him. And the calf with the young lion. And the fatling together. And a, and a little boy will lead them. And we can go on. And um, <clears throat> Verse 10. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The root of Jesse. Jesse, in case you haven't heard, Jesse was the father of David. Okay? The root of David. Now we move on. Like I say, we could, so much there. Verses 10 to 12. Jesus is described as eternal, and immutable. Both are what I mentioned before. Both are what is called non-communicable attributes of God. They can't be shared. We are not eternal and we are not immutable. Immutable meaning does not change. Does not change. And to, and to prove that, he's going to quote Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Let's read that beginning in Hebrews 1.10. You, Lord, in the beginning, dislay the foundation of the earth. I'm going to stop right there. Right Again, acknowledging him as the creator. You laid the foundation. You created it. And the heavens are the work of your hands. So not just the earth, but we're talking everything. We're talking universe. Okay? And whatever else might be beyond it, we don't know. I mean, for sure. We know heaven's out there somewhere, too. But anyway, now, verse 11 says, They will perish... But you remain, and they will all become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou will roll them up as a garment, and they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Wow. Okay. You will not come to an end. Again, he was always in the beginning, was the word. In the beginning of what? Well, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what John is telling us in John 1.1, in the beginning, when creation took place, Jesus was already there. Christ was already there. Messiah was already there. He's eternal. He's eternal. Again, what happened in Genesis 1.1? 1, 1? 
God created time, space, and matter and everything else. (laughs) Created it all. They will perish, but you will remain. Hmm. What did Peter say? 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then we get a new heaven and a new earth. So don't worry about it. It doesn't affect us anyway. This old thing's got to be cleaned and retrofitted or built from scratch. Who knows? We'll know for sure when the time comes. That's not a debate I think we need to have. Anyway, but you are the same, the writer says. You are the same. You are immutable. You don't change. Matter of fact, later on in Hebrews 13, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That talks about immutability. That talks about immutability. He does not change. And when you, you get all the way into chapter 13, after everything that precedes that, wow. <laughs> all that stuff about what we read here and in all that's coming about him being the great high priest after the, you know, the order of Melchizedek and everything that's said about him, he doesn't change, ever. And it says, and your years will not come to an end, once again, pointing out his eternality. He's eternal. He is God. And then in verse 13, we're given one final comparison. And in that one, he's going to quote for a Psalm 110, verse 1. You notice all the Messianic Psalms that are, that are there? That, uh, there's a bunch of them. There's, there's a lot that weren't quoted up here. But Psalm 110, when he says, again, that comparison, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer to that question is none, none. I'm going to read to you that's a portion out of Psalm 110 I'm going to read to you um, the whole thing the introduction it says Psalm 110 in its entirety reads this way the Lord and that's Yahweh the Lord said to my Lord Adonai which speaks of sovereign ruler so Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's amazing. Amazing. And that place, that time, I can't help but think is got to be getting close. Got to be getting close. Things are happening. Revelation 19. Again, um, this is what's going to happen when that time comes where he actually... When that event comes where he's king of kings and the enemy is his footstool, Revelation 19, 11, 16 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him that no one except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called, catch this, the word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and the word's coming back to take charge. Think about that. The word, the word, the word. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. <laughs> there we are in all our splendor and glory. 
okay, watching, <laughs> cheering him on. We're not needed, but we'll be there. And from his, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember, we're in the, uh, the, the uh, thousand year reign here. He will rule the water iron. There'll be some bad guys pop up. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's where he assumes the seat of David. He'll reign for a thousand years. Then that thousand years is going to roll right into eternity. And the question I would like to ask, when that day comes, will you be with him or against him? It depends on where we are right now. It is said of those who believe, Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. i just like to throw it out there. Everybody expressed that faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, do you recognize, one, your need for salvation? The fact that, as Scripture tells us, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have you even come to that point at all? That's really needful. And, again, we must point out that salvation cannot be earned through any type of human effort. Ephesians 2.8.9 tell us that, for by grace we've been saved through faith, not of yourselves it's a gift of God not a result of works Romans 6 23 says the wage of sin is death but the free gift the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and one's only hope is through the gracious work of Christ that's that's why we can come to that point because God demonstrated his love toward us then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Do you believe that? That he died like we saw earlier and paid the price for the sin, paid it completely so that he could go and sit down. Nothing more has to be done. Your sins have already been taken care of. All you got to do is believe. Believe in who he is, what he did. And um, the gift of salvation is, quite frankly, acquired through absolute faith, in the person and work of Christ. Nothing else. You're not believing in something you did. You know, a lot of people, false decisions come through. Hey, you know, way back when I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. No, well, Scripture says, Romans, again, back to Romans 10, verses 8 through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith, which we say which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and that a true salvation will result in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation, confess, what does confession mean? Think of the guy on the witness stand who... who confesses to his guilt <laughs> right you're just acknowledging you're acknowledging you're confessing you're acknowledging Christ for who he is as savior and lord for the scripture says 
Whosoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's from, I believe, Isaiah, if my memory serves correctly. But that is another one, though. You can. It says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You will not, if you truly believe, you will not be disappointed. That is a promise from God. From the Old and New Testament. Not that it matters. Both. It's from God. And you can take that to the bank. And as we close, I would just say one thing before we go to the potluck and everything. You know, if somebody out there doesn't know exactly where you're at and you want to talk about it, you know, we got a nice potluck, but I've got nothing better to do than to talk to you if that's what you want to do. Come see me or see somebody. See, see somebody else you might trust better. But just go talk to somebody. Don't let the don't let the sun go down on this if you can do it. So now I will close. I'm going to close in prayer as the men are going to come forward and receive the offering. I'll close out our lesson and pray for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day, Lord, in in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for your salvation that you have graciously offered and handed down to us. And Lord, I just pray that uh, if by chance someone here that has not yet come to the realization that they are lost and undone, that perhaps you would impress that upon their hearts this morning. And also, Lord, we would pray, too, for the offering that you're about to take, that um, uh, these funds would be used wisely and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.